So welcome back to another episode of the Startwell Podcast. I'm Kasim, uh, and this time in studio with my friend Len Senator, who I haven't seen for I don't know how many years. It's been a few. Quite a few. Uh, in a previous life, we were uh, working on projects maybe 15 years ago. Yeah, getting close. That were like um, that were like web projects for all sorts of uh, clients that you had at your studio mm-hmm. uh, called Hypnotic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, one of the anecdotes that I, I remember recounting to someone uh, when I was telling them that you're coming in today was that as um, a designer, you made at that time, and it still sticks with me, some of the most interesting uh, and, uh, shall we say, involved to implement designs for web interfaces. This is a time when, you know, CSS was fairly new. And uh, and some of the interfaces you made, like I remember Camp Erewhon. Right. Right, the local kids camp, summer camp. And uh, you really, I remember you really kind of wanted to relate the camp experience through the interface. Mm-hmm. And there was this uh, very cool design for the backdrop, for the background, and how it worked into the, it contextualized mm-hmm. the content in that design. And uh, I remember when we worked on that project, it was, it stuck with me as something that um, more people should be thinking in that way. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's going to, uh, that, that that idea of contextualization of human experience is going to work into our discussion today. Anyway, welcome to the studio, Len. Well, thank you very much. I mean, in all in all fairness, I have to give credit to uh, my business partner, Barry Martin, and our creative director at the time, um, uh, Brian Howe. They were, that was, that Erewhon project, which was very, very beautiful, and I do think kind of ahead of its time, yeah. really was their baby. So that wasn't a project that I had my fingers in too deeply, so I wouldn't want to take too much sure. credit for that one. But yeah, I did have a tendency to, I had my, you know, I had studied, um, I had taught typography, and I I had a sort of a, uh, a really interesting design, and it was interesting as we got into web, you know, especially in the early days, it was in some ways a step forward with interactivity. I had also been doing a CD-ROM development and other kinds of interactive multimedia. Sorry, st- take a step back there. Did you say CD-ROM development? Oh yeah. So yeah, I'll take a step away back. We can even we can come up to uh, to the CD-ROM part. So yeah, originally um, I studied uh, commercial photography in Montreal. I was from Montreal originally, uh, but I grew up here in Toronto, and then I lived in France briefly, and then I moved back to Montreal to keep my French from atrophying completely. Yeah. Studied Upkeep. commercial photography there uh, back when it was on film, uh, and then towards the end of my study. I got a, a demonstration of Photoshop One, and I was, you know, completely, completely smitten. And I realized this is definitely where I wanted to go with that. And so, uh, I kind of dove in. Uh, I, I uh, volunteered to work in a couple of places that had, at that time, sort of high-end Mac equipment, like Quadras and stuff like that, mm. and taught myself. The, the early suite of tools. This is Photoshop before they had layers, even before they had multiple undos. So you had to get things right, and you had to understand well, how it all worked. Right. It From, only worked on blue ink or black ink. <laughs> yeah. Back then. <laughs> and so we. So you know, I I kind of built up a toolkit before it was widely taught uh, in schools, and then. Uh, helped my alma mater, Dawson uh, Institute of Photography, set up their first Mac Lab. So I got a sense of that and ended up working in that in that area. And then having sort of transitioned out of photography just as that um, sort of 
digital revolution is starting to take root. I thought I'll future proof my career and uh, get really good at making CD-ROMs. So <laughs> that uh, <laughs> that's two entire technologies that I invested in mastering that became functionally obsolete right. uh, in my lifetime. So um, there's many more uh, down the road. I'm quite certain. Yeah. Well, um, you know, so from from those skills, and I moved back to Toronto. I worked in a service bureau. I became a teacher, teaching a lot of design technologies, taught typography for a long time, and worked and built up a freelance career, and then eventually partnered with uh, Barry to <clears throat> work with uh, this company, Hypnotic, which he continues to run. Right. Um, and we were partners for eight, nine years. Worked on a, you know a wide range of um, projects, and the the company grew, the projects grew, the scale complexity grew, um, and you know there was a, an effort to try to reconcile what we were doing with our values and our interests. You know, I was a sort of a TED Talk techno utopian for you know quite a while. I yeah. kind of I drank the Kool Aid, and I was you know very much into this idea that the the theoretical potential and possibility of this digital revolution to deliver um, you know some significant transformations. And you know things have not always necessarily gone as planned. Right. But there was a place where you know when you work in design, you're. Okay. But we're talking. Let's just frame this for the listeners. Like which years. So this would be sort of from 2000 to 2010, let's say for that 10-year period, My what would be my uh, 30s. For all the kids out there, that's basically the time until Facebook yeah. took over the internet. Yeah. The re-commercialization of the internet post-boom of 1990. Yeah, so you know, I was six? in let's say I was in photography in my 20s and design in my th- uh, <clears throat> 30s and uh and then I on to the depener in my 40s and 50s are still TBD. I like how you're staging your your life in decades and theme. Yeah. And there's a there's another overlay when I was 25 I took a year uh, off to travel around and sort of spent a year um abroad when you were 25. Yeah. So um, after I graduated, but before I came back to sort of dive into the career, I took a year to travel from pretty much around the world, from Bali to Delhi overland. It was an incredible experience at that time, sort of backpacking. And What year was that? That would be sort of mid-90s. Man. Yeah, so things have changed a lot. I still have a lot of slides left over from that period. I even, to give you an idea of the difference between then and now, um, I actually designed a uh, and built a portable darkroom and had an antique folding black uh, camera that I could shoot black and white film because my idea at the time was when I went to these places I wanted I didn't want to simply take pictures right if I was going to take pictures I wanted to be able to develop and print in the field and then give the pictures to the people I was taking I didn't want it to just be extractive and so here I was a long-haired hippie backpacker with a locked black suitcase with you know chemicals uh, with chemicals pow- white powders things wrapped in pre 911 you know, wires and timers and, you know, metal canisters. And they would put it through the x-ray machine at the at the airport. And they're like, what's this? It's, you know, it's not like socks and underwear for sure. Exactly. And I'd be, oh, it's photography equipment. And they'd be like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Wow. Not like... Uh, Can't do that anymore. No, no, That's why we all take world. photos with our phones. Yeah. So... <laughs> it's all it's all customs. Yeah. That, it's, you know. It's, it changed a lot. So, you know, there was, there was always this idea of like trying to sort of connect one's practice with one's sort of set of values. And right. then as we got into the design world, you know, design is became this kind of close 
cousin to marketing, which is sales, which is, you know, uh, part of this whole kind of uh, a growth economy, and you're kind of contributing, you're leaning in to kind of help people sell more things, make more money. And that, that isn't always without some some challenges and so we tried to figure out how to tie it in so we like tried to focus on clients that we felt were in t- areas that we were interested in or they mm-hmm. cared about right. we tried to focus on clients who were trying to do something worthwhile in the world that had a meaning or purpose other than simply making the most possible money we tried to encourage um, our clients to use their marketing dollars to do something genuinely worthwhile in the world so that people had a reason to actually care about their brand. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then, you know, after 10 years of doing that, there was a point where I had spent so much time trying to convince other people that they should be doing something worthwhile with their time and money. I kind of felt like, why don't I just cut out the middleman and just spend some time doing something I felt genuinely worthwhile with my own time and money, and so I, I, I switched gears. I, I think some of the the luster had sort of worn off right. the design as the kind of clients got bigger and the projects got bigger and the rates went up to match. Yeah, There was a sort of the bullshit to work ratio started to sort of <laughs> shift, and I got to a point where I Too like much I was, bullshit! Yeah, you know, and you, you had to justify these rates, to, yeah. you know, and, and it's like, we're not talking to the gods. I mean, there's skill, but, you know, you had to kind of pad everything to justify, right. and there was you know, all the buzzwords, and, all, and I just kind of got tired yeah. of that side of it and started to feel inauthentic. Oh, agency life. Yeah, and it took... it. It didn't. It took a long time for me to find language around that. At the time, I just I, I wasn't enjoying it, and I couldn't really tell why. Yeah, and it was tough in Canada. I remember like the digital agency evolution in Canada was strange compared to other parts of the world, where clients. I mean, also you know we're talking about clients that ranged from probably nonprofits to SMBs, and mm-hmm. then the odd corporate gig that would be like the big money gig for no work. Mm-hmm. And between all of them, you wanted to give the same amount of detailed, you know, thoughtful work uh, and be charged fairly and uh, equitably. Mm-hmm. But you know, the budgets weren't there for everybody mm-hmm. or for uh, for other people. They were, the budgets were so huge and they had no clue what they were buying. And it was the Wild West. And suddenly competition was on the scene too, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was it was a tough time. But I remember in Canada, specifically, the, the lens for me was that like, whoa, how come no one wants to pay for anything? Mm-hmm. Uh, and when they do, um, they want to be done with it as soon as it's over. Mm-hmm. This was a tough thing for me when I was then running my studio after that, that hypnotic experience and um, developed a really good client list. And all of it was inbound, which was crazy, you know, uh, to think now. We didn't need Google Ads back then. Mm -hmm. People heard about my studio, and they came to us for Mm -hmm. what we did, which was context-sensitive design for uh, communication platforms, Mm -hmm. you know, bespoke ones. And and it was funny because I I started, like, very early telling people uh, under Design Guru, which was my banner, that um, this is going to be the price for this project. Mm -hmm. And then I had that conflict for the first couple of years of Design Guru, you know, to drop the we from discussions and just say I, and then own that question mark that some people had, which was, I want to look under the hood and see how much work is being Mm -hmm. done because that's what I pay for. I pay for work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was like, no. That's not what this is about. You pay for the solution. Mm-hmm. And, if and the this, value that it provides. Exactly. Things may be different now, but mm-hmm. uh, f- actually, I don't think they are. I mm-hmm. think, I don't know, we see it with some clientele at, at the studios, like mm-hmm. uh, on the creative services side of like media production, it's still the same bullshit in mm-hmm. the agency world. Um, 
depends on the. I guess it depends on that, that nature of who you're working with, how they understand well, what I you do. Well, I do feel like there's this sort of split. Like mm. there's this corporate level yeah. where sort of money is no object. They're, they're just sort of swimming in money. It's not coming out of anyone's pocket. It's just coming out of someone's budget. They can afford to pay rack rate for everything. Yeah. And, uh, and then you have, like you said, the small businesses, the individual entrepreneurs who are like, trying to make it work and and the gap between them mm-hmm. seems to be growing as part of the sort of larger gap in in overall inequality and that and contributing to that gap was something that that didn't sit with me right. in in that particular time place and i felt like that was one of the pressing issues of our of our time and and day and if i i wanted to figure out a way that i could sort of push in the opposite direction could i do something to bring the the, the poles closer together and create a, a, a an accessible middle ground that people would feel at home in rather than create a service that only the high end could afford and that's the direction that I felt my design practice was going and it was I was getting feeling alienated from from that and the clients and the goals of the clients mm-hmm. and I decided I wanted to kind of refocus around the community where I lived, the people that I met on, on a human scale experiences that were accessible and affordable. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, now that I'm working on telling this story more explicitly, was informed, for example, by the years that I lived in Montreal, where we have, we had a lot of sort of bohemian artist types who could... Oh, yeah, I remember. Uh, yeah, and I mean, Montreal was a city you could afford to be broken, which was one of the things that gave it its magic. And, you know, we did a lot of creative, exciting, rewarding things, but none of them could be fancy because nobody had any money to spend on them. Yeah. And compare that to Montreal, where or to Toronto, where everyone's so busy... You know, because it's very expensive, so you got to hustle hard to make rent, to make bank, and then there's not a lot of time and energy and creative energy left over to reinvest in the creators themselves. And you know, right. so uh, a response to all of that and to the, my time in Mon- Toronto and my nostalgia for Montreal kind of led me to the next major phase of my professional life, which was founding the Depener. So, so I'm interested in this. So like how long did it take you to kind of um, envision the project or was it pretty organic? Where uh, was the Depener born before we define even what the Depener was or is? Well, so there was um, probably about a year. So like I said, there was a kind of a growing unrest uh, mm-hmm. internally in me. In I was chafing against the nature of the design work that I was doing. But I didn't really have a good vocabulary for how and why. Right. <laughs> but the enthusiasm was was fading. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that led inevitably. And I had a business partner who had a family who had ambitions of his own that didn't necessarily align with mine. I wanted to do great work. I wanted to do interesting work. I wanted to do meaningful work. I wasn't that interested in doing the most expensive thing and making more money and growing and, you know, I didn't have those kinds of ambitions and didn't necessarily align. And that led to conflict and eventually that conflict came to a head. And so I, you know, there was a point where I had to make a decision to do other things. And so there was a a gap where I had to 
to figure out what was I going to do next. Yep. I had still had a handful of my own clients and work I had to finish up. And it was a tough, it was a tough period. There was a bit of a crisis. There was a depression. There was other things that kind of, you know, but I was very fortunate in the support that I was given and other things to help me navigate. I had, I just had a brand new house that I was oh, trying I to renovate. That. That oh my like, God. All happened all, a lot of things happened all at once. Wow. Uh, and one interesting thing that came up is I, I, I picked up a freelance client, um, was a woman who had done, who had worked as a therapist and a facilitator for many years. And one of the areas she focused on was uh, change management in individuals, specifically mm. like people who were going to retire and didn't necessarily know what they wanted to do with really? themselves, especially when their identity and their value was very wrapped up in their, in work. their work. Yeah, And so I kind of offered to basically typeset her work into ebook format for free in return for her access to her as a mentor and to go through that process with her of examining what were the things that were important to me and then using that to brainstorm around what kind of things would I like to to be doing. And from that process and soul searching and a lot of sort of kicking some ideas around, I got a hot desk over at Center for Social Innovation Annex when it first opened. Props to the CSI. Yeah, yeah. that's where that's where co-working for me was uh, cemented as something I could, uh, I don't know, have a hand in as an industry, as a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it was exciting for me, too, to see that people were bringing the sort of ethical dimension into the DNA of the business. And that had sort of, that spoke to me because that was also a place where I was trying to find sure. uh, focus. Yeah. And so I met a lot of really interesting people there. Tanya Sermon, the, who, who helped establish it. I, I watched yep. and learned from them and the like-minded community. And from all of those conversations emerged this idea of wanting to do something with food. Because I'd, I'd always gone through life stomach first. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me about, like, even as your travels, were were they uh, guided by gastronomic you know, intent? Well, they weren't. A hunger? They weren't necessarily intentionally led by food, but they ended up, the food experiences ended up being among the most memorable and the most meaningful and the ones that, that you know, if I were to go back in my mind through the trips, you know, people sometimes have that, that mental castle with the different rooms, sure. you know, to help them. I have like the menu of all the different things that I ate in the different places. And so I did kind of remember through my gut and experience through food and it was a, uh, a real a real convenient shortcut to memorable and meaningful experiences and that kind of came to the foreground as I was thinking about it mm-hmm. I mean the idea of frantically cooking the same thing every day for a bunch of people I never met didn't appeal to me being a chef the traditional yeah. chef well, in a restaurant I, I had read uh, Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential and that yeah. pretty much told me I, d- I just wasn't cut out for that oh. kind of macho pirate ship kind of vibe first time I lived in Toronto was because after McGill I had gone back to Kenya um, and was thinking of what to do. I kind of had this food experience as well because um, I loved cooking. I loved feeding people. Um, but I had yet not experienced hating uh, the dirty side of the hospitality industry. And uh, and so I'd applied to chef schools all over the world. And I got in, you know, of course, all the fancy places you have to pay oodles of money to. And I was like, yay, I could wear... All sorts of, uh, you know, logos on my lapel, on my fancy whites, and be a cordon bleu asshole. Or I could go somewhere really cool. And uh, and I was like this close to going to the Spear uh, Vineyard in um, Stellenbosch, hmm. just, uh, just kind of like north, I guess, of Cape Town. 
and uh, and had all these dreams at the time of as I got accepted there to their cooking school, which only had like eighteen students or something, mm-hmm. of uh, of creating these amazing you know impala uh, medallion you know dressed in like whatever local berry juice uh, I don't know I got really kind of I romanticized the idea I went to South Africa I checked it out it was really cool but something called me back to, to Canada this was mm-hmm. before we met and I came back here and I was enrolled in George Brown's culinary school mm-hmm. worked at a couple restaurants uh, as a line cook and within four months I mean my knife skills were amazing I learned everything I could but I got just abused in those kitchens mm-hmm totally out of the pages of that book and like for me i treated it like a scholastic you know exercise so i was just laughing Mm -hmm. at how ridiculous the people who called this their life Mm -hmm. was you know and uh and they didn't see it that way so then when i called it quits one day it was great it was just a hungover morning where i basically called in and said i'm not coming ever again and was yelled at by the like head of this particular terrible establishment that's gone bankrupt since which i'm glad for and will not name on camera because it's shameful that I worked there managing deep fryers and drunk people but yeah it's it's always sad when when you really reflect on it and you you say okay well this is a field I want to be involved with because it's so part of my life but at the same time the conventional paths hmm. into that industry are um they feel like there's a constrained narrative for you even there like as a career path and uh, then it's not going to be fun so what's the point that's sort of what I ran into I I wanted to do something with food but I didn't want to be a chef and even the traditional restaurant model with its luxury and decadence and sort of social signaling just didn't really appeal to me this was around a time also when pop-up dining was kind Mm. of starting out as a phenomenon worldwide it was in Paris and London New York and San Francisco and there was this really interesting kind of intersection of arts and events and thing and it was underground and it really appealed to me but I was like why is none of this happening here in, here Toronto. in Toronto we have this incredible diversity of talent we have the ingredients we have the interest we have the you know but you know and I so I looked into it and the, what I kind of concluded was that the costs of setting up the infrastructure to do a one-off food event were, and the, the logistical barriers were so high that only people who were very well capitalized could consider doing it. Right. And then once they did that, it made the event incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. And then only people with tons of money could go to that event. And then the whole thing became an elitist hipster clusterfuck that was just essentially not right. interesting right. to me. So I kind of came to the co-working kind of conclusion. If I created a place that had all of the infrastructure in place, so that you could do this without having to reinvent the wheel. You could invite a much greater diversity of people to come and participate as cooks mm-hmm. and keep the events much more affordable. A co-worked then, kitchen. Yeah. It's co-worked a, restaurant. Yeah. So it's essentially um, kind of what we built. Um, and, you know, we were able to... You know, make it so that we could lower the barrier to participation for the cooks, make it fun and interesting, exciting, give them a lot of creative freedom. And if it's fun and interesting, exciting for the cooks, it's going to be more fun and interesting, exciting for the guests. And we could we actually created a social dining experience. It wasn't a restaurant. You know, people would share a family style meal, platters on the table. It's the only place in Toronto where I know where people pass food to each other. Mm-hmm. And that fundamentally changes the nature of those experiences. I thought about 
the kind of food experiences that I had had that had meant the most to me, that were the most meaningful, the most memorable. They weren't the ones I spent the most money on. No. And so and you forget those. I find yeah. I forget those experiences. Yeah. They're commodities. They're transactions. You, yeah. you go, you spend, you think it's great, and then it's gone. And, but the ones that really stick, the ones that you shared with people, that you were in an exciting place where you learned something, where you felt connected yep. to the food or to the cook or to the story behind what you were eating, that's what I wanted to create more of. And so the became a that was sort of the design brief. Could mm-hmm. I keep everything I loved about food and kind of dodge all the things I didn't like about restaurants? And I took over this, you know, kind of abysmal corner store, sort of an inconvenience store. Was this a rent? Did you rent that property? Yeah. I signed up. I took over their lease. Yeah. It's a really interesting building. It was a bank back in the turn of the century. So it has that kind of like, uh, yeah, it has that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. How would you describe the architecture of that building? Yeah, it's sort of like um, 1850s sort of bank building, small town Ontario. But it has that curve to it. Yeah, it's on a corner. There was actually a mirror building on the other side of the street, so it was like faced into this boulevard. It was one of the few... um, older historical buildings in the neighborhood. I had moved into that neighborhood uh, about a year and a half prior, so I was now living uh, around the corner. And this idea of wanting to invest directly in the community where I lived. I didn't want to just live there and then hope something exciting yeah, you or fun to or interesting. Yeah, you contribute yeah, and enjoy I, your neighborhood. I, yeah, I wanted, yeah, I wanted to be part of the community. The first start well was very much that as well. Mm-hmm. Ground floor retail, 1,000 square feet. Uh, I got the butcher next door to give me $5,000 as a seed investor. Mm. It wasn't the only money that went into that sure. that venture that got lost through a hole in my pocket and paid back to the butcher in the end. But I wanted someone in the neighborhood, neighborhood to de-risk that um, vibe. Mm-hmm. You know, the place had to feel a sense of, uh, of belonging. Yeah. This anyway. was all bootstrap. So this was yeah. like, I threw everything I had at it, yeah. took a big gamble, but it was mine mine to make. And, you know, I did everything was very resourceful. I mean, everything was repurposed, reused, recycled in an innovative way. I probably spent on that entire place what some places might spend on their espresso setup. Mm. So, Oh, I know that all too well. <laughs> I have like literally brought to life, you know, these great machines between these couple buildings of ours, uh, just because I didn't want to spend. I don't know how people spend like twenty, thirty thousand dollars on an espresso machine. It's totally possible. So yeah, we did everything on the fly. You know, the everything was, you know, know, we actually even had a when we first started, we had a community kitchen drive. We actually had a party and put up posters in the neighborhood and said, if you have extra plates and bowls and spoons. Bring them by. We're starting a new community Sweet. food space, and we ended up with enough stuff to fill a dozen kitchens. Why, wow. would, why would you want to buy all of that stuff yeah. all over again from scratch? And then it got the community invested in what we were doing. We're like, oh, yeah, we should go to that place. They have my forks, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and they, Grandma would be so proud. Yeah, we became like the hospice for unloved mugs. Like, people felt connected, and it made the place approachable and welcoming. And, you know, I had to learn a lot. I had not come from the food business, I had right. not worked in the food business. I knew very little about it and i you know i the in the you know after that first year i had my ass handed to me i mean i had run out of all the money i had yeah i had to sort of shut it down and turn it around and and bootstrap it back up in a new format as well i had had a rigid this original idea that we would be this combination cafe corner store during the day right and then i would host these food events at night and a brunch on the weekends and i thought i had partners originally you know oh, who were yeah, going to like look we. after yeah well i mean I, I tend to use the royal we a lot just yeah. cuz it's a for all your inclusive. schizophrenic personalities but also there's you know it, there's a, it, it takes a village there's so many people for who've sure. contributed for sure. over the time but in the end you know 
what I thought were my culinary partners who were going to run the brunch in the cafe. One got the other one pregnant and they moved to Hamilton. And so I ended up Muzzle. having to do it myself. And uh, then I thought, oh, you know, well, I'll do this pop-up food event in the nights. We'll have our events and then we'll sell some coffee during the day. I mean, how hard can it be? Well, turned it's hard. out. The it, coffee business, really I tell hard. you. It can eat you alive. It's, it was very challenging. And, it, and ironically, the th- stuff that I thought was going to be really hard uh, turned out to be relatively easy. And the stuff that I thought was going to be easy, selling some coffee and stuff during the day, turned out to be so hard that I had to abandon it altogether. Any While we're on the topic and on that note, uh, for anyone considering you know, pr- a change in career that would lead them down the path of starting an espresso bar or mm-hmm. a coffee shop... Any immediate anecdotes or particular recommendations for them? Um, if you're interested in going into the sort of, you know, sort of third wave coffee espresso thing, then I'd say work at one and see what they're actually doing. Get a good handle on how it works. You know, it's like I mean, even going back to like when I studied photography, that had I learned a lot of things, but I didn't learn what it meant to actually work as a commercial photographer. Right. Which they I don't learned. teach you, or they didn't yeah. teach you that. They and tell you how to take photos. Yeah. And I'm not sure that a chef school is really going to teach you what it's like to run a restaurant. You know, and so in the same way, I think you're going to, you know, you might want to study, but, you know, the experience of seeing how an, a successful cafe actually operates behind the scenes would probably be incredibly valuable. I Great tip. leapt in, you know, sight unseen and uh you know and and on the one hand had i come from the food and beverage industry i don't know that i would have done this because it would have seemed like such a bad idea so it's not even about course correction (laughs) you wouldn't have been more agile you just wouldn't have made that certain decision yeah i think well i would have been sort of set in my way so the the double-edged thing here is that it gave me a bit of a beginner's mind yeah i approached what we were doing in such a strange way, so atypical, yeah. that I was able to create kind of a whole new category of food venue. One of the challenges has always been for the Depener is, you know, whether it's on Facebook or on the Yellow Pages or whatever, it's like, it doesn't fit. Sorry, what was that? The what pages? <laughs> Back when you had to choose a category under which you wanted your ad to appear. And I'm like, well, it's not a restaurant. Oh, that's the worst. But yeah. it's not a banquet hall but right. it's not a cafe yeah and you know they're like oh you're a restaurant what kind of food do you serve i'm like well i serve 300 different kinds of things mm-hmm. a, a year but i never serve the same thing twice. sounds like chinese food to me yeah but it's never the same thing twice so it's like i couldn't even get a i couldn't even get a restaurant review because they would come to eat something and you'd never be able to order that food again yeah so what i was doing was very very outside of the box both conceptually in terms of the standard restaurant model. And then, as it turned out, you know, it, it made it hard to fit into the very rigid box of city bylaws and, and business structures, which don't really flex very far to accommodate things that aren't designed to go in it. So there was mm-hmm. a, a lot of navigating of that. And that took full advantage of the privileges that I have as a, a English-speaking white educated articulate person to navigate this you know this complex gauntlet of bureaucracy and there are a lot of things that if they were that hard for me I can only imagine how hard they would have been for a lot of the other people who would face similar things oh I'm sure 
I'm sure I've never I've I've once in a while I've actually looked at like bylaws to slap my wrists on certain innovations that we've wanted to do on campus and say okay this is going to take too many permits or mm-hmm. I don't even know how we get the permit it doesn't say yeah you know stuff well, like that and some and of the bylaws you know you take a look at them and you wonder when were these written yeah the the the, the bylaw that ran my retail food store for example had a specific clause that forbid me to sell horse meat in quantities greater than a quarter carcass. Well, I tell you, how do you measure that? Yeah, and I guess at, that, at, at the time when that was written, clearly that was a problem. I guess bite size is not an issue, but you maybe know. that's that. Oh, that was before Doug Ford too. So that <laughs> was way, way, way before. Or Rob Ford or any yeah. of the. So the we had milk. to, you know, we had to find a lot of ways. So you know, for example, you know, between the licensing and the zoning, and there was a six-year battle to get all the paperwork in order. And I wanted all I wanted to do was host a dinner party, and yeah. I wanted that party to be BYOB, so people could bring their own drinks and have it with their meal. And that is currently illegal in in Ontario. Uh, If you take a fundamentalist reading of the liquor laws, everyone is forbidden to drink anything anywhere at any time except in a licensed establishment or private residence. So I had to come up with, I became a kind of a loophole hunter. And so the Deppner became the home of the Rush Home Park Supper Club, which was a private members association where people would buy a membership to attend a meeting where a free meal would be served. So no alcohol was bought or sold or served. But if members choose to bring their own beverage to their own meeting, I mean, who am I to tell them how to run their meetings? But their membership only lasted one day. So if they wanted to attend another meeting, they had to renew their membership. But of course, that's that's a story. Right? That's a story for a would-be inspection by mm-hmm. a, a, a figment of our imagination yeah. inspector. Yeah. It's not necessarily a license that you need to have on the wall. No, but I mean, you had to... Because I, I went through the same process of like, I need to build this story to be credible and relevant yeah. to that potential inspector. Yeah. These inspectors don't exist. Well, there's a few things. First of all, there's a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. So you have to kind of figure out the structure of the rules, and then you find the cracks in them where you can flex to create things that don't currently exist. And then, yeah, going into this, I didn't know how vigorously or rigorously these laws would be enforced. And I ran afoul. I had a a summons uh, to go to court for operating a victualing house. A what? That's what they would call a restaurant in the bylaws, right? <laughs> to give you again an oh idea of when they were written. Yeah, back in the uh, stronghold of the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> yeah, so you know, so it took a it took a, a a lot of a lot of time to figure that out. And there's also practical politics. I mean, from my understanding in Ontario. All the liquor stuff is administered at the provincial level by the AGCO, but they want the enforcement to be done by the municipality bylaw officers. And so they have this kind of pissing contest where they're like, you enforce it. No, you enforce it. No, you pay me. No, you're going to pay for it. And I'm like, I won't do it. Well, then I won't do it. And so like nobody enforces it. So the other thing is a practicality of scale. This was a, a tiny little corner store. We say 24 people. If people have a glass of wine with dinner, the fabric of civilization is not going to unravel, you know. So unless somebody, you know, very maliciously narked us out, yeah. right, yeah. it was unlikely to, to, to stir the pot. Sure. So I was taking advantage of what was possible at the scale that I intended to operate, you know, understanding that if you go into something that everything we do has to be scalable and franchisable and, you know, then you're, you're going to kill a lot of ideas before they're even had a chance to, oh, absolutely. to thrive. 
it's difficult because that's kind of a societal mm-hmm. it's incumbent upon you to participate in society in such a way that it feeds this like bigger better faster more right yeah and so the depth was sort of me shaking my tiny fist at that and i really wanted to create something of finite human scale it was a one-man show it was a thing that was a created human scale experiences that were unique and exclusive not because they were super expensive but because they only happened once they happened that one time mm-hmm. and you shared it with those people and that's what made it precious snapchat before snapchat yeah yeah well yeah, something like that. But, you know, so the, a lot of these things emerge. And so from that emerged this place, which became a showcase for culinary talent in the city. Uh, there was a time where I was running somewhere in the order of 300 unique culinary events a year. How did you source the people that were offering the food, like cooking in the kitchen? It was a mix. I mean, you know, for example, the Depp started um, around contemporaneously with a program thing that was uh, the Toronto Underground Market, okay. which itself was modeled on a San Francisco underground market now, mm-hmm. which had caught my attention at the, at that time. So that, that market was intended to be sort of a, a, a culinary nar- mar- night market where talented home cooks could show off their, their wares. And I thought that was super cool. And that was a big inspiration for what I wanted to do. I even went down to San Francisco to try to do some research. And then Toronto created a version called TUM, the Toronto Underground Market, but it quickly got absorbed by that exact kind of ambition that you're talking about and went from being this nascent idea to this, you know, 2000 person gigantic oh brickworks thing with a $50 ticket and a hour long lineup and corporate and blah. and they burnt themselves out essentially, you yeah. know, and you know, but by the time you were being expected to show up there with a thousand covers of food. You weren't really showcasing underground talent anymore. Right. You were really catering, You're a caterer. You know, so it stopped being underground pretty quickly. And you know, the, the scale at which I designed uh, what I was doing was designed to g- genuinely underground. But to answer your question, so for example, I would go to the Toronto Underground Market. There would be people sort of. You know, dipping their toe. Now, it was a great platform and springboard for a lot of talent as well. I mean, mm-hmm. they did a, they did fill a niche. It was just a bigger one than mine. And I would go there and say, I love what you're doing. It's really cool. There's a place that you could come and do this. It would be just you instead of you competing with, you know, 50 other vendors. And so I would solicit from them. There's one food truck was just trying to get some momentum in the city. I would contact those people. There were some Facebook groups that were starting out there, a food and wine navigator. I would reach out to people there. Yeah. Uh, I would go, you know, to, uh, to market. Markets, uh, f- uh, farmers markets, and food affairs, and you know, taste of the damn or whatever. And anywhere I saw interesting food, I dropped my card, a little solicitation letter. Mm-hmm. But it was really based on um, those personal connections. And then it was designed to be inherently viral. So uh, in in the old school word of mouth way, people came to the dinner. They knew that the person cooking was often not a professional cook. Sure. And so then they would go away with this idea, oh, there's this place where... Oh, I know somebody who's a, who loves to cook. They would love to do this, and yeah. so they would tell them, and and then the cooks would know each other, and they would have a they'd be working at a restaurant, and someone would come on board, and they're like, oh, you know, you're really talented. Why don't you go do a pop up there as a side hustle, make a little extra cash? Nice. And so it's a cipher over. It's like a hip hop cipher. Yeah. And so over time, it picked up enough momentum, and you know, it's always been a mix of like uh, one offs and unique things, and uh, you know, you have total first-time amateurs who've never cooked for the public, and you have fledgling professionals and culinary students and people who've just come from out of town. And then you have, um, you know, seasoned pros who don't always get 
the creative freedom right. that they want. And you're working at a fancy French restaurant, but you really want to be making, you know, Sichuan, you're out of luck. So we give them a place where they can come and, and play. Yeah. So different people come for different reasons. And the accumulation of all of this has, you know, been this incredible richness of, of food and, and culture in this little tiny space. So it's been how many years now? It's been just over 10 years that I've been wow. running this space. So, um, yeah, and, you know, and we've done thousands of different things. We also do cooking classes and workshops. We did a lot of private events. People got married in that space. You know, we ran brunch residencies that would last a year and then change over. We did a lot of different things. It's interesting because there are restaurants that definitely don't last anywhere near that long that either are bootstrapped or mm -hmm. ridiculously overfinanced mm -hmm. um and that uh probably deal with as much uh you know chef turnover staff turnover <laughs> well okay not really but like the thing is that uh, compared to a restaurant i guess there's a couple questions i have one is the business model question mm -hmm. how does this thing sustain itself or how has it um I hope for yourself that you got out of the early financial mm -hmm. quagmires of putting everything into this thing. Well, I'm still there, so right. it still exists. So that, but it did take a while. So there, there, there are a few sides to this. One thing I'll just say about the restaurant model as it currently stands is yeah. that it's so expensive to do in the city, so capital intensive, that that tends to constrain creativity in a huge way. Sure. Because when the you stakes have have a model. when the stakes are so high that and it, there's so and much when money, the stakes are so expensive. Yeah. Then you sorry, bad <laughs> people people basically are looking for the next really trendy thing. They want to jump on it, milk it for all it's worth, and cash out. Yeah. And so you end up with a lot of copycat derivative trend chasing. I mean, if I see one more barn board Edison bulb fish taco, like I like lose my freaking mind, right? But it it's it's a byproduct of expensive real estate and high capital costs and so on and so forth that people can't take creative risks. Right. And so the depth is sort of the opposite of that. It keeps the stakes super low so that people can try and do interesting creative things that might never fly but might still be worth doing. I mean, we did a night that was uh, a half Haitian, half Scottish fusion dinner called Voodoo Haggis. Now, I don't know you're going to build a restaurant on that, but for one night, you know, you can do something and that's genuinely creative and that, that is exciting for scary. me. It was actually but terrific. Awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, very talented cook and, you know, really interesting story behind wow. it, too. So, you know, as far as the business model, it's always been a shared risk, shared reward model. You know, so we invite, for example, we'll invite a guest cook to come in. They prepare the meal and we split the money. And it's as simple as that. They get to use the facility. I provide the, the sales, marketing, ticketing, infrastructure, sure. yeah. front of house support. They pay for their ingredients, and we divide it up. It's either you know 50-50 uh, or 60-40, depending on the nature of the event, you know, and the the, the ticket price, you know. So uh, if we if if it sells out and everybody's happy, we both take home you know more than we would have made working in a restaurant, you know, for the same night. Right. If it does really poorly, we both take a hit and we share the risk and we share the reward. Um, my ambition, as I mentioned before, was pretty modest. So I went into this with a signing five-year lease saying, if I can get to the end of this lease and not be any poorer yeah. than when I started... I will consider that a success. That's a great metric. And I actually hit that target. It wasn't easy, but you know, the first year I, I was way deeper than well, I started. Sure. Yeah. And then I picked it up and then by five years I had paid off everything I had paid off and was back to sort of 
square one, and then I could actually start building from there. And it's it's done well and you know well enough. And I don't need much. I mean, another function is it's a function of a certain kind of privilege that I have. I mean, I spent 10, 15 years working in design. I say I don't have a lot of other cripplingly expensive hobbies. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, crack. Ha- I don't have a family. I don't gamble. You know, I'm not doing other kinds of stuff. So I took what I had. I put it in my house. I live in one third. I rent two thirds. Mm-hmm. My living at my, my room and you know, and board is pretty cheap. I have the depth. It was, and when You've I took- nailed the millennial zeitgeist. Well, it it was it was made possible because the place that I took over, this horrible corner store, was really cheap. They had a crazy old landlord, and the place was a shithole, but the rent was really low. And th- because it was low, you could experiment. I you could, could. Yeah, you're not really invest in much. fixing it up. Yeah, I could make mistakes, and those mistakes wouldn't be catastrophic. And I could pick myself up and figure it out. And over the last ten years, the, you know, the the rent went from being a great deal to being a good deal to the landlord passing away, the kids taking it over, and now it's really not much of a deal at all. It's been oh, no. it's gone up more than three hundred percent since I started. Terrible. And but the room hasn't gotten any bigger. No, you know, and the you know the model hasn't significantly changed. I mean, you know, I've had to adjust pricing and I've added more things, but you know, I'm essentially maxing out. And so, one of the big lessons of the DEP is what is possible when you keep the stakes low when things are affordable, like Montreal was affordable, like Toronto's world. As I watch the city become so expensive, I really get concerned about the cost of gentrification, the cost to our culture and to our society and to our the quality of our lives when inexpensive things have nowhere to live. You can't have a vibrant and dynamic food ecosystem in the city at the grassroots if there aren't affordable places to make the food and serve the food and eat the food. And so, you know, uh, I'm sort of in a transition right now and, you know, w- remains to be seen whether the climate will allow for something like the DEP in this, in this new rental landscape. No, it is difficult, especially, yeah, when we talk about the rapidly escalating commercial real estate pre-pandemic um, inflationary pressure, it's it, it's doesn't even, there's no sense to it. Yeah, you it's know. disconnected from, from the earning capacity. Yeah. Yeah, and, and of course, there's property tax issues and the idea of that, like, oh, suddenly if a property is worth so much more because everyone's paying more to live in that neighborhood, the high street should be worth more, and the people charging more rent because they're like, yeah, well, everyone's rich in this neighborhood, so, you know, and it's it's just right. an abstraction. There's a lot, of, a lot of things that need to be fixed. I actually became really interested in the sort of larger systemic issues. And I reached out to an organization called the Urban Land Institute that yeah. sort of does a lot of sort of consultation on development in cities around the world. I knew the director of the Toronto chapter, and we actually started a roundtable on social purpose real estate. Mm. This idea that real estate has other functions other than a f- as a financial vehicle, mm-hmm. other than simply residents that if, you, if there are no affordable places left, what what is lost right. and we you know we began to sort of champion this conversation in a space where i don't think that conversation was being had and so you know i, I feel like i'm trying to use the depener as a 
example. And I'll give you I'll give you one example. Mm-hmm. So you know about um, seven eight years into the project, around 2016, uh, this is when all the Syrian refugee families arrived right. in uh, Toronto, and you know everybody kind of wanted. They were stuck in hotels. They didn't have any way to make food for themselves or for their families, and people wanted to help. And I was like, well. I want to help. How do I help? Well, what do I have? I have a kitchen. So what can I do? I can put my kitchen at the disposal of the, of the people who don't have one. Yeah. So we started a project called Newcomer Kitchen, and we invited the Syrian refugees to come and use our space to share some, uh, to make some familiar food, share a meal, bring some leftovers home for their friends. Mm-hmm. And from that, it kind of grew into this incredible project, which you know, expanded to work with over 80 Syrian families. We turned it into a weekly wow. pop-up. We were selling 50 meals a week, and we were using a similar model. We were generating revenue. We were paying the ladies, paying for all the ingredients, paying for the packaging and all the overhead costs. And then all the profits were being given to these women. That's amazing. You know, and we ran that for three years and it became, you know, a really high profile project. It was in, you know, the New York Times and The Guardian and, you know, the and Time magazine. And like, you know, it became a really Canadian response to the Syrian refugee crisis. Right. And I, I think it, it demonstrated, again, like the possibility of what can be done if profit isn't the defining a metric that everything has to be measured by. Right. You know, so we created this sort of nonprofit spinoff that built on the Depp's DNA of, you know, entrepreneurial support and food and community building and uh, and created this. And it's now its own standalone nonprofit organization that's continuing to work with newcomer uh, women in hmm. the city. So, you know, these are the these are the kind of things that can take root, not because they were funded from the top down, not because they were you know, this act of benign philanthropy by some billionaire. Yes. Yeah. Right. But simply because like the Depener itself, because you created a space and held a space and nature abhors a vacuum and all this creativity and talent flows in to fill that space if you can keep the barriers down. It's it's definitely something that's intertwined with the ethos here at Startwell, right? Like we started as a co-working space, you know, uh, definitely aligned with technology companies, right? That was the, the, my impetus for founding this company was to create a private sector space, um, because I would be free of bureaucratic restrictions uh, if I was government-funded in any way to support the evolution of new technology in this country and the development of early-stage ventures, tech ventures, mm-hmm. startups. Um, and then it's grown because in many ways we've found community, and community is uh, in this city so diverse. So even technology is, of course, part of everything in society these days. So we've had to expand our scope of who we uh, enable on campus and what we do um, to enable them with so many more services and spaces that are uh, creative, mm-hmm. like this one, right, mm-hmm. where we're recording this kind of podcast. But around the corner, we have this uh, you know, fully built-out film and photo production space and it's funny because it's like a really terrible business. It's terrible. It's funny because I was just telling someone from the world's largest, you know, uh, I guess, co-working flex space vendor, IWG Group, we were talking uh, earlier today. And I was saying that, because he was asking me, how do you make money in, in this film stuff? Like, is it great? Is it terrible? I don't know. We just don't know. We are not in that business. And I'm like, but you're the biggest you know, office space people around. And they're like, but it's not our business. So 
it's very interesting that yeah we've had to go into that a great unknown because we saw a need for our members to have creative space right and the more i scratched the surface the more i realized that if you wanted to do a film shoot or a photo shoot and you needed a 2000 square foot psych with mm. you know cornerless walls where do you go you have to go up by the airport mm. you have to go east into film city where you can't get a booking because all the big lots are um, booking at the small lots to do things like photo shoots for mm. poster art and stuff like that when they have talent in, in town. Or you go west, and if you're in a photo studio, it might not be sound treated. Mm. So how do independent filmmakers, documentarians, whoever else do interview shots? So I was like, wow, this is definitely ticking all these boxes. But the comps for people coming into book space mm. are still those spaces. Mm-hmm. And they say, you know what, it doesn't cost me anything to uh, take my Honda, fill it with equipment, and drive out to the airport. It does, but they don't mm-hmm. factor in that cost. And uh, so I'd rather go there if I'm saving $800 on the booking fee. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting is to say we're actually sacrificing income but mm-hmm. providing creative space because we're offering it on a competitive pricing model. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like top-tier just like anything at Starwell, it's got gear and grip, lighting, everything's there with the bookings. But um, but we're doing that to enable the people to be able to produce stellar stuff. And we've had like, like we've had indie filmmaker uh, Ryerson University graduates come in there, um, use the space with the same equipment that the team who just shot, um, you know, I forget his name, but Simu? is his first name. He's like the new Marvel superhero. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's blowing up in terms of being an icon for uh, Asian uh, community globally, uh, East Asians and Asians in general. And um, such a nice guy. But he was in our studio for Nobis because he's Nobis's another great Canadian company. He's mm-hmm. their brand ambassador for the next year. You know, the same space where something like that, this has big scope, you know, is being shot is now accessible because of our pricing model mm-hmm. to a recent film studio graduate. But it, it takes us eating, you know, the potential gains of only going after commercial mm-hmm. um, clients to subsidize in a way the, the rate that we're offering people. Well, but, the, the, the co-working model appealed to me because it was, you know, emergent from this sort of sharing economy ideas, this sort of optimism, the democratization of access. So at the Depeneur, for example, uh, I have the the kitchen and the event space on the main floor. And in the basement, I took over a second unit. There's a whole story oh. of how and why and made it into a secondary prep kitchen, which has always been rented out to a rotating cast of different fledgling entrepreneurs, sure. food entrepreneurs. So sure. um, there's half a dozen sort of local food brands that have incubated in that space and gone on. And they often carry that DNA with them when they go and finally outgrow the shared space into their own space. They get a space and then share it themselves mm. with other people. And so, you know, this idea that if you have the space, you can enable things because the sharing of the space is the tool by which you lower the barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people who have started out in the Depeneur kitchen weren't ready ready or couldn't afford to put down the lease and equip an entire space for their business yet. Right. So it gave them a way, a stepping stone, a launch pad, an on-ramp on t- into entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurialism that wasn't readily available. And, you know, I was doing it very, very much at the at the, the entry level. And then above me, there were some other food incubators for people who wanted to sort of scale up or go national or, you know, so the, there are different tiers mm-hmm. at every step along the way. And so, you know, you find your niche in that, in that, in that escalator. But I also have this idea of like surplus capacity. 
with the newcomer kitchen model, one of the ideas was how much kitchen space is there in the city that sits idle and empty for how much part of the day yeah. that couldn't be used to help newcomer communities, to help right. at-risk communities right. of all kinds. So I wanted to show that, hey, that one day a week when I'm not using my kitchen, look what we can do. Right. And so, you know, in that way, uh, you know, I wanted to kind of show by example the, the transformative power of simply idle capacity. Oh, yeah. And so you have this studio, you have this studio and other space. And so the question becomes, you know, you want to fill it as much as you can possibly fill it, but nobody's filling it 24 mm-hmm, 7. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what can you do with it when it's not being used? And it works into real estate uh, as well. This is what they call meanwhile spaces. So, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, developer takes over. Well, even this building. building, like all of our properties, yeah. redevelopment property, yeah. our landlord will knock it down and build condos or yeah. some sort of like mixed retail living space in the next five, ten years. You yeah. Know? So what so. are we doing in the meanwhile? And so there's a lot of opportunity there. And I do I do, I do, do feel like those are the cracks that we talked about yeah. where the light gets in, yeah. that they create opportunities to do things where the regular market has made those things inaccessible. I think, um, tell us a little bit about the, the new project, because I think it's an evolution of this, um, the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book has 300 recipes? So, no, it's 100 different recipes by 100 different chefs okay. who have cooked at the Depener over the last 10 years. So, uh, as we ran into COVID, you know, I had to sort of shut down the majority of all of the sort of in-person activity mm-hmm. that we did. So, we kind of had to reinvent a new model as a pickup uh, only food venue. So we still invited guest cooks. They would come in, they would develop mm. a menu, but it was for pickup only. We were doing that twice a week. Okay. We had to shut down the brunches and the private events. And so we kind of went back to a skeleton kind of operation. But, uh, you know, uh, what we learned was that this pickup model actually had other strengths and weaknesses and that we could do a higher volume that we could use to be able to fit right. in the space. So we were able to offset that. But while we were sort of navigating this COVID space, I tried again to think of what can I do with what I've got. I have this surplus time capacity now, and we we were hitting this 10-year mark, and I decided why don't we do something that supports the community of cooks that we have and tells the story of what we've done. So I decided I wanted to make a cookbook that told the story of the Depener, that showcased this incredible diversity of talent, because I've never really seen a book that actually looks like the people who cook in this city. Yeah. So we have 80 different nationalities in this wow. one book. Uh, and then I did some due diligence and did some research. And I quickly discovered that the only business model worse than the food business <laughs> model is the food cookbook business model. So it became clear. So essential to the Depener's ethos is people get paid for what they do. We might not right. be able to pay a lot, but we dignify and we respect. We don't get people to do things for free, for exposure. So if I was going to invite 100 people, I'm going to pay them all an honorarium for being in it. And I realized that that was simply not going to be possible Mm -hmm. with the kind of money that was available for a Canadian cookbook for a brand that may not be well-known. It's not a celebrity chef. Mm -hmm. So we took it to Kickstarter, and that's really a big lesson there. We're 10 years of building a community who genuinely cares about what we're doing, what we're trying to do, who we support. They really rallied around this project. That's and amazing. so this Kickstarter for the cookbook ended up becoming the most funded Canadian cookbook project ever. Wow. And we were able to sell over 700 advanced copies of the book that didn't yet exist and raise enough money to 
take the photographer to hire an amazing photographer, Sanya Hotik. Uh, he, she herself was one of the cooks who wow. cooked at the Defener and has now become a published uh, cookbook, uh, a food photographer. Uh, this is, I think, her third cookbook. And um, and we've been creating this book. And so we've been, we're, 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 um, we're we've shot in like 97 out of the 100 uh, recipes already in the farm, and we're interviewing all of the chefs and talking to them about their relationships to food. And again, not necessarily being professional chefs; these yeah. are a huge range and diverse kinds of people who have done who are sharing their recipes. And there's so much in, incredible storytelling in there that's not going to fit into the book. Mm. That we're actually thinking of trying to build out a podcast that really unpacks the stories of the food, yeah. and into in anticipation of the book, which has just recently been picked up by Simon and Schuster. Congratulations Thanks. to the whole community. That's and fantastic. Yeah, but it, but you know when you get in with a big company like that, you kind of get in line with all the other projects they have in development. So it's and there's a big sales cycle and stuff. So it's not going to be in the world till 2023. So in the meantime, what do we do to kind of build anticipation for what's going to be in there? So we're looking at at telling those stories, amplifying those voices in some interesting way. And I'm actually looking at taking a little bit of a break after 10 years of this. I'm actually kind of gearing up for a sabbatical. I was talking about themes and overlapping cycles and periods. So when I was 25, I took a year off and yeah. traveled around the world. And now I just turned 50. So Congratulations. You, you made know, it. Uh, maybe 50. I'll do that again. So it's like a quarterly report. I'll check in every uh, <laughs> 25 years. I'll do it again when I'm 75. Probably won't do it when I'm 100. So, you know, maybe as well carpe diem. Man. And, so yeah. what, do you have plans for that year well, abroad or a year all, off, I should say? All, all things considered, you know, it's really hard to make those kind of plans. We're not out of the world. Yet. No, definitely not. So if COVID's been a, one thing, it's been an exercise in living in the moment. Right. But uh, so, yeah, I definitely hope to do some traveling. I definitely hope to do some eating, you know, and uh, and, and rest and, you know, but also sort of gather wool and, and sort of sort through the experiences of the last 10 years and use them to sort of define where I want to take the Depener next. Well, it was an absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to that podcast, yeah. and I'm I'm sure we'll talk offline about helping that be produced. That would be very cool. Uh, and it's been a pleasure to hear about the whole story. And of course, start well in whatever way we can help is here. Amazing! Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Len. Thanks. Mm-hmm.